0: Okay, uh, if you don't have a Bible, lift up your hand, the ushers are coming down and they'll make sure that you get a copy. For the rest of us, let's open up to Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6. Keep your hands up and uh, as the guys are coming around. I'm going to confess something before we start. I never do this, but I want to confess this. We're in this doctrine series, and today we're going to be talking about the covenant. And uh, I worked my tail off the last couple of days um, for one reason. Um, There's a difference between preaching and teaching, right? Uh, Preaching, I prefer to preach because preaching is uh, what I call the hostile takeover of the heart. Uh, Hearts don't come uh, compliant. The Holy Spirit through preaching softens hearts, and so I prefer that. The teaching part is necessary, I just probably don't lean that way. So this passage today teaches better than it preaches from one angle, but it's absolutely, you're going to see, it's absolutely core to everything we believe and essential for all the building blocks of doctrine we've been talking about. So I just want to give that as a, as a precursor because we're going to be doing a lot of flipping, a lot of scripture reading to describe the covenant, uh, old and new, and, and we're going to look at those together. But if you've been here through our series together, we're studying doctrine. I didn't count them, but I think there's 13 or so studies that we're doing together. And, and I thought about you when I did this study, and I go, how many people even care? Like, we don't do surveys, and I don't, I don't ask folks how they handle in the doctrine series, but... I thought it might be helpful for you to have this grid work or this way to synthesize all the stuff that you're getting. I'm trying to ramp up its value. And so if you're going, I'm just, I'm just waiting until you get into a book where I feel like it's more practical, give me James or give me death, that kind of thing. Um, I, I want you to listen to this list of, of, of reasons why doctrine matters, the benefits of teaching biblical doctrine. Biblical doctrine builds discernment and reveals the will of God in our lives, right? So as, as we live as Christians in a fallen world, the scriptures are clear and needed for us to know what does God want us to do? How does he want to do, want us to do it in specific ways? And, and so you will be less than the best if we're not aware of and familiar with the doctrines of scripture. A doctrine prepares us for every good work. The scriptures tell us that, right? Timothy was told that by Paul to prepare and equip every man for every good work. And so if we're called to represent and reflect the the image of God and be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, the closer we are in understanding who our God is and how he works with men is the closer we'll get to being a benefit to, to others. I would say this, this is huge. There's a huge fall away in biblical doctrine around the world. I mean, I, I can just picture in my mind all the open doors of churches around our country alone and how many of them don't actually teach the doctrine of grace alone and Christ alone by faith alone, right? It's more on you than it is on God. And, and so we teach doctrine because there is a resistance to biblical truth. And, and also the conclusion of, of false teaching is it doesn't just stay neutral. It destroys people. So we teach the doctrine because people's lives are at stake. Your spiritual life is at stake. Your future, your eternity is at stake based on what you believe. So if you're off on how a man is made right before God, you spend eternity separated from God because of your lack of understanding. Doctrine is essential, right? Um, biblical doctrine stirs the heart and mind. Probably one of my biggest passions is what we just did that you probably were caught off guard with, and that is called this corporate expression of the truth of God and the gospel applied to human hearts. Worship. Worship. This thing we get together. So I know it catches us off guard. We just got out of the car. We run in here. We're not prepared to give God our best. I I get it. You have the advantage of having worship past the message, though, so you can get your minds and hearts around that. But nothing ramps me up more than people understanding God clearly and biblically, understanding his salvation through Jesus our Savior clearly that what comes out of a life is worship and affection and devotion right? That, that we see it in not just the worship when you sing and collectively gather, but the worship of your life when it's offered as a living sacrifice to God. That matters. And then one last one, the biblical doctrine reveals the size of our problem and the magnitude of God's solution. More than anything else, from cover to cover is a story. It's a story of God making and God redeeming. Everything is a love story. From beginning to end, a redemptive story. We're going to see that in the discussion of covenants today. And so if, if doctrine points any direction, it points to the, to the nature of God as a saving God, as a loving God. It's absolutely essential. So I want that to kind of whet your appetite. So if you've been sitting on the outside going, you know, let's just get through this doctrine thing. I want you to know how important it is for you. How important it is for, for us just a quick review, we've been in this uh, series for some six weeks, I think. Uh, so far we've taken a look at the doctrine of the Trinity, one God, three persons. That This, this shows the completeness, the, the unity, the mutual submission, the love of the Trinity. We looked at the revelation of God. We can see that there's a God, Romans 1 says, by what has been made, no man has an excuse to say, I didn't know. I couldn't tell. The Bible makes it very clear. The organization of creation declares a creator. And we also have the very specific revealed word of God, cover to cover. God gave us precisely what he wanted us to know. Not everything there is to know, but everything he wanted us to know. There is no hidden revelation. There's no thing that we need that we don't have, God has given it precisely through the prophets and through the writers of Scripture. We looked at the doctrine of creation that God makes. Just by His spoken word, He calls everything together, that there was nothing and He made something. He sustains everything. We sit here today breathing. Uh, did you guys like the weather last night? Anybody see the rain? Did you go outside and just go, okay, this is your one time a year to watch it rain? It cleaned the dust off the deck, right? It's really wonderful. God did that. The God of creation made it rain. The God of creation gives us air to breathe and food to eat and sun to shine on our backs. This God has demonstrated in creation that he is, he is also eternal, that he's independent, he's transcendent, he sustains what we have. He's personal, he's beautiful, he's come close, he's holy. This is our God and we see it in creation. We've also seen um, the doctrine of man. What is man? That he was made in, in God's image right? And so therefore, there's some things that are similar between us. There are types of characteristics that God is perfect in that we have and that we share, like God loves and we love, not at the same magnitude, but, but we love. God is a, a creator, and we're creative. God has the ability to create from nothing. We can manufacture out of things God created, but there's creativity there, um, Righteousness through Christ, our God is righteous. Mercy we can extend, and God is merciful. Beauty we can notice, and we have, and God is beauty. All those things are true, and we share them with our God, but there is a bucket of things that we are not like God. Although created in the image of God, our God is omniscient, and we are not. He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. I've tried it. It's really hard to do. You can't do it. He's everywhere. He's here now. He is, he is um, omnipotent. He knows everything and he has power and control over everything. The scriptures tell us he's eternal he always was he always will be the scriptures tell us that he's sovereign there isn't one maverick molecule in all the universe getting the best of god he's not frustrated his plans aren't stopped his will will be done this is our god he is a sovereign god he's immutable he doesn't change he doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed next week getting tired of our act our god doesn't change and our god is holy and holiness is really the foundation of of description of every characteristic he's holy in his power He's holy in his love. He's holy in his grace. He's holy in his unchangeableness. This is our God. He's holy. And it led us, that whole discussion of of our image in God and and an exposure of who God is and and who we are led us to last week. How many of you were here last week? That was the fun message. That was the message on the fall. The fall. Um, The problem. Sin. Sin. The reason why our world is the way it is, the reason why our hearts are the way they are, the reason why our family is jacked up like it is, the reason why uh, we're sick, the reason why we're dying, the reason why we don't have, the reason why we hurt, the reason why we walk off and wander from God is because of the fall. Remember last week we looked at Genesis 3 telling you here's the epicenter, here's the moment in time, that in the garden God made, right? And he put Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, "Love it, enjoy it, hang out with me. There's nothing separating us. Just do one thing. See that tree in the middle? Don't eat of that tree or you will die." And so Satan presents himself to Eve and Adam and says, "You know what? I don't bl- I don't believe God. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to have the best." He's keeping some stuff back for himself. And so you know the story, right? Adam and Eve decided to believe the lie. And instead of the truth, they took of the fruit. And the rest of it is horrible, horrible news. And if you fast forward to Romans chapter 3, okay, Genesis 3, here's the event. Romans 3 tells you the consequence. Romans 3, it says it's far worse than you ever feared. Everyone has sinned. And everyone has fallen short of God's holy standard. There isn't anybody who merits any favor with God based on their life or their behavior. It's, it's worse than that. I mean, I wish I had another language. I wish, I wish I had a picture. In fact, I looked at this message when I got done with it, and I go, I don't have any illustrations. I mean, I have none. Fundamentally, I don't know how to describe how bad the fall is. But you could probably tell the story. You could write a chapter, couldn't you? How many scars do you have based on the fall? How many regrets do you lay awake at night with because of the fall? How many druthers do you have because of your participation in the fall? See, here's what happened. The garden, that sin of Adam and Eve wasn't just unique to Adam and Eve. They transferred it to all their kids. So Romans 3 is true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, it is so bad, Isaiah can say your best deeds are like filth to God the best that you can offer, if you mustered all your spiritual strength and focused all your attention on trying to please God, God would look at it and go, "False short. You and I can't be together. Remember how it was in the garden? No more. Because of sin. Rebellion. How many of us sinned this morning? Don't raise your hand. Everybody. It's in us. The fall did its damage. It's still doing its damage. When presented with the temptation, Adam and Eve doubted God's sin in the world. So here's what we're going to talk about today and for the next three other weeks after today, and that is we're going to look at God's remedy to the problem. And and apart from what people will tell you, what our society will say, and what helpful books or trying to be helpful books will tell you, you don't need another chance. You don't need another option. You don't need a better environment to grow up in. You don't need a different family to come from. You don't need a better home life. You don't need more information. You don't need more church. You don't need more religion. You don't need more adjustments. You don't need to try harder. None of that merits anything. Sin is that bad. I was driving down the road the other day. I'm, I'm fairly blind. I can see shapes and colors, okay? Um, and I still have a license, and that's good. But I was driving so close to the guy in front of me, I finally could read a bumper sticker. And here's the bumper sticker. The bumper sticker said, I was born okay the first time. You know, and that's, that's his response to um, born again. Now, now, see, he is just declaring what every sinner apart from God thinks, that it's okay. I can fix it. I'm not that bad. Look around. I mean, compare ourselves horizontally. We could do a little survey here. We could just test every one of us and decide that there's one person, one girl, one guy in this room who is better than everybody else. They win. The problem is we don't get to compare horizontally. God says, you have to measure to me. And he's so holy. He is so perfect. He is so righteous. He has such a hatred towards evil. Every man, every woman falls Not even close. Not even close. The chasm is eternal. The chasm is eternal. It's so far you can't even get close to feeling better about yourself. You weren't born okay the first time. What we need is what we don't have as a resource on our own. We need holiness. Holiness, a better way to say holiness is um, the inability to sin. Or as Jesus said, blessed are the pure of heart in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Or blessed are the holy, because guess what the, what the result is for the holy? They will see God. You know the chasm that exists because of sin? is sin of Adam and Eve, and now sin that I inherited and sin you inherited, is separation from God for eternity. Right? In a place called hell. What I need is what I don't have instinctively or personally. I need holiness. Give it to me somewhere. And Jesus says, blessed are the holy. They'll see God. God states this and Peter reminds us of God's statement. Be holy. Imperative command. For I am holy. Now if you're a thinking person. I have just presented you with the biggest conundrum in human history. God's standard requirement and your lack, right? I want to see God. Man, you got to be pure. God says, be holy. I can't. I can't. I fundamentally can't get there. So God intervenes on our behalf and provides what we need most through Jesus Christ, and that's what this message is going to be about. The whole thing is a refocus on God's promise made and God's promise kept and us, the promise receivers, and the results. That's the, the point. So for the next four weeks, this fall that we talked about last week, God is going to explain his remedy to our mess by today talking about this covenant that God pursues us. Next week, we're going to talk about the incarnation that God comes to us We're going to look at the cross that God dies, and we're going to look at the resurrection that God saves, and then we're going to finish, four weeks, we're going to finish with the implications of the gospel. When the gospel changes sinners from death to life, when we go from darkness to light, what happens? What happens to our worship? What happens to our understanding? What happens to our relationships? What happens to our community? That's what we're going to talk about. Today, though, our task is to look at the covenant, so I thought it'd be best for us to start at the beginning in a fast-forward motion, get us to the point. So scrolling back to the garden, God created all that was, an unbelievable world uh, for us as a home, perfect for us, everything we need, everything we wanted, and the presence of the Lord. God made us in his image as image bearers with dignity and relationship with him. God gave us companionship and marriage so we wouldn't be alone He gave us uh, nothing but grace and blessing and sustaining us, everything. And our response to all of that was sin. Horrible, undeniable, inexcusable, gory, God-separating sin. God's response to our sin is covenant. And that's what we're talking about today. A covenant is simply by definition an agreement between two parties. And so when the Bible speaks of God's covenant with his people, it's a description of the relationship we have with God. And it's made by his plan and on his terms. Another way to, to see God's covenant with man is that everyone that God forms is a life and death covenant. There is, and, and I thought, this is where the illustrations break down. I tried my best to get a, a, like a, a, an illustration from today to kind of see, this is the weight of this kind of covenant, this kind of promise. So this, God is making a promise with sinful man, and it's a life and death version of a promise, but we don't have any of those. I mean, the closest I could come up with was maybe a, a parent for a child. You know, in all of my life, and I'm being really honest about this, I love my wife, but I made a decision to get married, and we, we knew we had issues with each other, right? Every, every couple does. Like, I like him for this and this and this, but this part, I really don't like him. Right? And she's really sweet with this, and this, and she can cook like crazy, but I don't really like her for that. We work at unity. But when my kids are born, I go, man, I just really like them. I really like them. And you know what? They like me. I don't have to perform. I mean, they don't think I'm ugly. They don't think I'm fat. They just like me. They think I know stuff. Um, they like to hang around me. They're interested in my input. I go, man, there's, a, there's nothing on the planet closer to how God feels about us than when I look at my little guys, they're not little anymore, and, and they go, And they're in this for nothing. They just love, right? But you and I both know when this fallen, jacked-up world we live in, even the family illustration breaks down, doesn't it? I mean, I've talked to too many people who come from homes that were abusive, too many homes that broke up, too many homes that made promises and didn't deliver on, too many scars, too many wounds, too many failures for us to have a really good, reasonable God-sized illustration to talk about covenant love. God says, I'll put my life on it. We don't have anything like that. We don't live for anything, we won't die for anything, very rarely. So we're going to have to try our hardest to see this covenant from God's perspective. It's unbelievable, church. It's unbelievable. I thought we'd talk about why God makes covenants. Because if you're a thinker, you're going, okay, God makes covenants, I've heard that before. Why? Why? Why would he have an interest? Why would he take that position? We've talked about this word before. It's a Hebrew word. It's the word hesed, remember? If Neil was here, he would rebuke me. He would say it's Hesed, but um, I didn't want to spit on the front row, so we're just going to use Hesed from here on out. Um, why does God make covenants? Uh, I, I took the liberty to, to copy a bunch of verses so we don't have to fly around too much that bring up this word and this depiction of God's affections, and God's intentions for people using this word hesed. So they are very familiar passages in most of Psalms, so just listen to this. Who is, God, uh, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in hesed, mercy. For, the heavens, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his hesed, mercy, towards those who fear him. Who crowns you with loving, hesed, loving kindness and tender mercies? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good; for His hesed, His mercy, endures forever. In fact, that passage in Psalm 139 has uh, 26 statements or mentions of that word hesed. I have loved you with an everlasting love; therefore, with loving kindness, hesed, I have drawn you. I have wooed you. Show us your mercy, your hesed, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Over and over again. I mean, I could overwhelm you with the places where God shows up and says, I'm going to love you this way. This is my affections for you. And so let's try to put it in a very Hmm. buckety, kind of a blurry, lot of word definition to this word hesed. Why does God make covenants? Because our God loves with a consistent, ever faithful, relentless, lavished, extravagant, one-way path love. The, the best English terms we have for this kind of love is loyalty love. And, and even that fails because we go to our access of the word loyalty and how we've experienced it or how we've given it, and we go, oh, that kind of loyalty? Because I've made promises. I've walked down an aisle. I've stood in front of a preacher and said, for better or for worse, and now I'm on my second husband. That kind of loyalty isn't what God is talking about here. This is the kind of love anchored in the permanent, unchanging character of God. Hacid love. This lavishing love. This relentless Hound of heaven, coming for you, love that won't ever be stiff-armed. That kind of love, and it shows up in all this, these covenants that we see in Scripture. And we're going to end with the, the new covenant. But I thought it would be good for us to get familiar with all the covenants, the major covenants that God mentions in the Scripture, and and then deal with how they go together, transition, and are fulfilled. In the new covenant of Christ, the first one, and we're not going to do a ton of study just mentioning them for the most part, the first one is the covenant that God made to Noah, Genesis 6, you've got your Bibles open to that, uh, verses 5 through 8, now we saw this I think last week, but, but here's what God saw. Verse 5 The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Verse 8 But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God saw. That um, should intimidate you. God sees. God sees now. He sees your motives. He sees my motives. He knows why you do good things. and knows if they're actually for you versus him. Our God sees everything. Just like he saw the world at the time of Noah and said, man, all they ever do is sin. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Now, you're going to be glad after we're done with this look at, at, at Genesis that God made a promise not to kill off the planet again because we clearly deserve it. God sees um, the sin and he says, I'm going I'm to destroy everything. We know the story, right? In, in fact, I'll tell you how bad it was in Noah's day. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis 5 is a perfect illustration of how bad it had gotten. You might read it and go, oh, it's just a genealogy. It's just saying who lived and who lived. You've got to follow the sentences. There's a rhythm. There's a death rhythm to chapter 5. This man lived, and then he died. This man lived, and then he died. Over and over and over again in chapter 5, that's all the writer is saying. He lived and he died. He lived and he died. What was the consequences for the failure in the garden? Death. death. Genesis 5 is just simply stating how bad it is sin and death. But Noah finds favor. That word "a favor is grace. It's unmerited favor. It is undeserved favor. Um, You might have been told someday in your life that Noah was an unusual man. He was the exception to the rule that Noah was righteous on his own. No, Noah was a sinner too. In fact, if God wanted to be done with Noah, he could have been. And the proof more is in the story. So we know the story. Noah believes God, builds an ark, all those 120 years, the flood comes, they're on the water, everything dies, and then the boat comes to rest, the floods recede. The first thing Noah does is recognize the fact that he, he should have died too. He was overwhelmed that God wiped out the planet. The first thing he does is walk off the ark, build an, ar- an, al- an altar, and kill and sacrifice for the very first time, shedding of blood for sins. It's bad. God, I don't deserve your favor. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve this unmerited relationship, but I'm taking it. Noah recognizes he deserves death as well, so he builds this altar and sacrifices. And so God makes this promise, and here's the Noahic covenant God says, Listen, Noah, I never again will destroy the earth with flood, right? And so he hangs a rainbow in the sky to just remind us every time it rains. Now, I was outside last night when it rained. Chasing garbage bags down the street. And it was too dark to see rainbows. But I've heard where it rains a lot, (laughs) that you see those things, right? Um, And have you ever, I mean, do you stop and go, there's a promise. There's this promise. There's a signature on the promise. Every time, we kind of take those things for granted. But promise made, promise kept. God said, I won't destroy the earth and flood. That is the Noahic covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made to Abraham. Flip to Genesis chapter 12. Again, some of these things are very familiar with us, but it's worth reminding ourselves the story. God um, comes to Abraham, right, and makes a promise with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's a big promise. Abraham's going, man, I'm, I'm kind of old. He's in his 80s here, and he's, and he's getting a little impatient, and you flip over to chapter 15, and he has a moment, maybe a mini little breakdown. Like, maybe his age, maybe his circumstances, maybe God's delay in fulfilling the promise has caused Abraham to stress a little bit. And he comes to God and he says, in verse 3, you have given me no children. You have not delivered. And so a servant from from my household will be my heir. And then the word of the Lord, in verse 4, came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And more than likely, you have highlighted, circled this verse somewhere in your journeys as a Christian, but verse 6 is tremendous, has tons of implications for us. Abraham believed God, and it was credited as righteousness. The promise was to make a great nation from this old man. This, this man in his 90s, and by the time you get from that promise that God makes to chapter 16 of Genesis, Abraham fails. He still doesn't believe God. He says, wait a minute. I'm going to have to take matters in my own hands. I'm going to, have to, I'm going to have to deal with this. So remember, his wife suggests sleeping with his, her maidservant, and, and he did, and they had a child named Ishmael. But God still said, listen, I'm, no, it's from you and from Sarah. That's how this is going to happen. Abraham struggled to believe the promise, But the promise was fulfilled. We know the story. Isaac was born in their old age. No, uh, Abraham was 100. Uh, Sarah was 90. Um, There's a lot of laughter in that story. Um, unbelief, I think. But the promise was fulfilled. God calls uh, Abraham to take his son and sacrifice his son. You know the story. And so we have this prophetic moment. A, a realistic provision and a, and a spiritual provision all stated in one little phrase when they're building the altar and Isaac looks at his dad and says, Dad, where's the ram? We have no ram for the sacrifice. You know the story, right? And Abraham said, God will what? God will provide the lamb. Practically speaking, God will provide a ram for the sacrifice. But, but God will and, and has provided the, the lamb the sacrificial lamb for sin. You know as well as I do, lambs can't deal with our sin. They're types, they're illustrations, the point that death and blood is necessary to appease for sin. So we have this covenant that God made. Abraham will make you a great nation and he's, he's delivered on that promise. There's another, another covenant that we see in Exodus chapter three, if you turn there, and it's the, the covenant to Moses. Exodus chapter three verse 7 and 8. We know the story here right God's people are enslaved in Egypt. God interrupts Moses' little life at a at a conversation with a burning bush. And in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Exodus, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's the promise. There's the promise. God says, I see their suffering I'm gonna give them a land. I'm gonna make them a great nation. Again, a continuation of the promise that he made to Abraham. So we know the story. Enslaved and embittered for 400 years and God brings Moses to confront Pharaoh and he does and through plagues and through a Passover, the, the, the uh, angel uh, angel of death passing over, Pharaoh lets go the people of God, millions of people and, le- and so God leads them, the text tells us, through the wilderness. Um my guess is that they were more concerned about what was behind them than they were concerned about who was leading them. Nevertheless, they are in the wilderness following God, following this this physical presence of God, the fire. And in the in the wilderness, we know some of these stories, the, the Egyptians change their mind, they're coming back after the Israelites, they're in the Red Sea, God divides the Red Sea, and then decides to get the Israel across and destroys the Egyptian armies there. And I'm 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 leading up to something, so cut me some slack here. Um In the wilderness, they're groaning and and needs. God rains bread from heaven. When they get tired of bread, he rains quail. They have plenty to eat. They're provided for. Over and over again, God leads them and provides for them. And then God makes a covenant. I want you to turn again just to the right. He makes this promise in Exodus 19. This is where it picks up a little bit. Exodus 19, verses three through six. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's the promise. God says, listen, here's, here's the deal we're going to have together. You obey me, you'll be my people. God makes this covenant to Moses. We know the story. If you, if you don't have to turn there, but the next chapter over, God gives the law, the Ten Commandments. Keep them. The fourth covenant I want you to see, and again, we're going to bucket these all together and, and focus on the new covenant in just a second, is the covenant that God made to David. You're going to have to flip forward just a little bit farther to 2 Samuel. So you're going to go past uh, Joshua and Judges, 1, Second Samuel, chapter 7. Here's where it's, God picks up. The Lord declares, middle of verse 11 actually, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest With your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish his throne, the kingdom forever. Skip to verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The promise that God made to David was a kingdom that lasts. Now, if you know the story of, of, of Israel in that day, Israel had a king. It was God. God had led his people for all these years, but the people grumbled and they said, no, give us a king like every other nation. We want somebody we can follow. So in essence, Israel rejected God and asked for some puny substitute. We know what happened, Saul, right? A nut job. Here's a guy who was crazy. He was not honoring to God. He disobeyed. He cared about his own strength, had massive fears. And and so the people of God rejected God himself, took for themselves this king, and God rejects that king and selects for himself his own. And this king is David. And through David, we have the lineage of Jesus, that this forever kingdom that he promises to David through the line will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This Jesus, the one who will sit on the throne forever, our king. That's who God was talking about in this everlasting kingdom. That's the, the covenant promise we see. Now, the reason why I wanted to briefly go over all those covenants because we're gonna put them together and see how they interplay, how they matter together, the consistencies through each of them, and then we're gonna look at the new covenant. The first thing that I want you to see that all these things share together is that, that God hates sin. You see it in every story, every promise of God. Every time God shows up and interrupts human life, he is, he is dealing with the necessary need of man. Man has a sin problem. When he shows up in Noah's day, The world is done because of sin. Abraham had to sacrifice because of sin. Moses never made it to the promised land because of sin. David fell with Bathsheba, and he was called a man after God's own heart. Sin, sin is the problem. All these covenants had no one righteous, independent righteous man in it. There wasn't one story of this unique person who broke the code of sin and failure. There wasn't anybody out there who pleased God on their own. They were all sinners in need of a Savior, Everyone the common thread from Genesis 3 throughout human history is that men sin and God hates sin. And over and over again in the scriptures in the Old Testament, you see sacrifices as as examples of the ultimate sacrifice that was gonna be needed to deal with the sin of, of men. And you see the consequences of rebellion against God. Another thing that's true in all these covenants is that God loves sinners. He can't help but see that, can you? I mean, God could have just said, Noah, uh, you're, you're with everybody else. I'm going to just start all over. I'm, I'm not even going to redeem one. He could have looked at Abraham and said, Abraham, you can't, even, you can't even get one chapter away before you're trying to fix your own problem. He, he, could, have, he could have looked at, at David and said, David, come on, David. Look what I've done for you. When, when, when David is anointed as a shepherd boy, the Bible says that the Spirit of God came on him with power supernatural, Holy Spirit, can't explain it away stuff. A successful warrior, you know the Goliath story, there's, there's more evidence than you can shake a stick at. Just like Israel, wandering in the desert, following an image God presents, seeing bread rain from heaven, seeing the Egyptian army die in a sea that they just crossed through in dry land. And then they get to the mountain and they say, you know what? Moses has been up there a while. I know what we should do. Let's build a, a, a false God. Gosh, that's in us. That's in us. We're all sinners. Every covenant shows us sinners, but every covenant shows that God loves sinners. God, god has no reason to pursue us. He has no reason to love us. He has no reason to be patient. He has no reason to express hesed to us, none whatsoever. It is who He is. There's not a person here, whoever's lived, that that is worthy of God's affections or God's attentions. And so every covenant proves that there is sin and God hates sin and that he loves sinners. These all um, illustrate that God imputes righteousness, unmerited favor. Um, When I was young, going up in the church, I used to hear the Bible stories and I always felt like the stories were about these unusual types, the extra special types. It took, you know, 50 years for me to to know that they weren't. They received mercy. Just like you. Just like me. God gives what we don't deserve. Unmerited favor. Grace. Every story, every covenant that we see, that we see, um, God gives the gift of himself. Relationship. God comes close to man. In Noah... In Abram and Moses and David, he came close. He knew, he spoke. Just like he does today through the Holy Spirit. And all the covenants we see that they're completely and totally fulfilled in this new covenant, which we want to finish our time with this morning. The new covenant, if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, it's the first mention of the new covenant. Go past Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, you'll get to Jeremiah. Chapter 31, the prophet writes about this coming covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, the first mention of this prophecy. This is God talking. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, And with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, No, Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Don't don't turn to this one, but you're familiar with it. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is coming to the conclusion of his earthly ministry. He's in the upper room with his disciples. He's now using the illustration that we're going to do in just a little bit called communion to describe his efforts towards them, and he takes the bread and he breaks it. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is a symbol of what I'm gonna do. Now, they didn't get it. We have 20-20 hindsight. He then takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. This is the, the new deal. This, this changes everything. You guys have been striving through law and effort only to fail. This changes everything. Forgiveness through grace, unmerited favor, acid, I do want you to turn to this passage. Go to Hebrews chapter uh, 10. There's some powerful stuff in Hebrews regarding the promises of God. Describing this Savior, this Jesus, as a better priest, a better mediator. He's a better representative. He's the perfect and the one and the only sacrifice that would satisfy God's righteous standard for our sin. And in Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 10, just the kind of second half of the verse. This is a declared statement over us, church. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. All of those, all of those sacrifices, all that blood, all that failure, all that inability, all that rep- repetition, finished in Christ. All the religion is gone, finished in Christ. Skip over to verse 19. He goes on to say, therefore, there's a so what to that sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. You should underline this next phrase. He who promised is faithful. Amen. Amen. He who promised is faithful. Back up one chapter again. Chapter nine of Hebrews, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. you see what's going on here? This new covenant, is Jesus is the solution, the perfect, total, complete solution to our sin problem and our inability. How many of you would describe your life with Christ as perpetual failure? Come on. Because if you haven't raised your hand, you're a liar. (laughs) You know more. That just makes you guilty. You know, how many times have you caught yourself and actually said in your mind, you know, I'm doing it again. I'm doing what I know I shouldn't. The reason why Jesus has to be the solution to our problem is because the sin is so prevalent. The sin is, is, uh, is unbelievably damaging to how we think and how we live. Jesus has to satisfy himself for our failure and inability. Jesus becomes the propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement. He becomes the the death to give us life, the once and for all sacrifice. You know, we started out today, and I asked you this question. Why would God enter into covenant with sinners? It doesn't make any sense from our angle. Until you see that who God is, is he's a covenant maker and a hesed lover. But he's a God who is consistent and, and ever faithful and relentless and extravagant and, and a loyal lover. Now, you may be sitting here going, awesome, great. God's love, sign me up. I'll take that. I mean, I've never met anybody when you present God as this loving grandpa with, you know, fuzzball in heaven who wouldn't say, yeah, I'll take some of that. You know, it's always safe. Fire insurance. You know? Nobody resists a description of God going, he's just going to give. All you do is get. Now, there's a problem, and I'm going I'm to interrupt this wonderful moment we're having about the Hesed love of God and interrupt that the Hesed has a counterpart. And the counterpart to this unbelievable, extravagant, never quit, never say die, hound of heaven love is hatred. Church, listen to me, okay? Hesed love has so much more greater meaning because God hates sin. The counterpart to his love is that he hates it. He hates sin. He's a holy God. He can't tolerate it. He can't overlook it. He can't just say, I'll get you next time. He can't. Everything you do is sin. He can't. I was just having a conversation a little while ago with a, a couple, a, a, talking parenting. And, and I've, I've said this forever, but it's so true. You know what the easiest thing to pass on to your kids is? Your sin. You don't even need to try right? If you're goofy, they're goofy, right? You don't have to teach. You don't have to focus. You don't have to prepare lessons. You don't have to remember to get up and deal with stuff. All you got to do is be the person you are, and they become, yeah, they're sinful, they're sinful at the core, and just here's the, here's the bad news of the good news, and, and just so you know, the good news can't be good unless the bad news is this bad, and that is that your sin offends a holy God. If you can fix your own problem, if you can sort out your own issues, if you can climb some religious ladder, if you could pray enough or know enough, then you don't need a holy God because your sin is so great. God has to intervene. He has to dive into time and space, and he has to take that burden otherwise there's no solution because the scriptures are clear right you must be holy i don't have the source of holiness i've never met anybody who could give me that there's no person on this planet who is good enough to have god go you know what that whole sin thing you're the exception to the rule you 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 and me would make a great team God hates sin. Now watch this. Let's work our way through this. The counterpart to God's hessed love is his hatred because he is holy, right? And it's tethered to this word nobody likes and it's wrath. The wrath of God, the scriptures tells us, the holy, righteous, good wrath of God is being stored up in heaven for all sin. There isn't, get this, get your brain around this. There isn't one sin or rebellious thought in all of human history that God's wrath isn't being stored up against. That's how holy our God is. Now, here's two options. Option one, you think this stuff is just a bunch of words on a page, and it's it's one of the many options, and it's probably not true, and so you say you're going to go it alone. Well, then, the scriptures say that you will spend an eternity... Uh, Dealing with the wrath of God. And never being able to satisfy it. That's why eternal death is eternal death. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Separation, a place called hell. Forever and ever and ever. And you never are done. Ever done. Your sin is that offensive to God. Or, or this wonderful imputation that God would somehow, somehow he could take the the sin of Of believers and transfer it to Jesus so that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, all of the wrath of God is propitiated when He pours it out on His Son. It's satisfied. He doesn't need another sacrifice, He's not looking for another get back. It's done. His holiness is appeased because His justice has been exacted on Jesus. Do you get it, church? And you get the second half of that imputation. You get his righteousness transferred to you. So you know that thing that we needed, that we didn't have, Adam and Eve didn't have in the garden, we all need to be with God, holiness? We get it transferred to us. Therefore, you can't lose it because it's not anchored in you. It isn't going away because it's anchored in Christ. It can't be lost. It can't be shaken. It can't be out sin. God's grace is greater and greater and greater. Now, I'm telling you, the grace of God is absurd and it's offensive. I get it. Because religious people would prefer to work. Sinners know they need grace. And the good news always starts with the bad news. And the bad news is it's far worse than you ever feared. But come. Take it. It's free. The grace of God is free to all who would confess and repent and believe. God gives the power to change souls. And so when God sees us, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the scar of, it, my, this is my left hand, this is my working hand, you know? So if you're a garage guy, you get this. Everything I do with my right hand punishes my left hand. So there's all sorts of scars. So this is the ugly hand. When God looks at us, he sees the scars. Apart from Christ, there's nothing, nothing there but failure, nothing there but rebellion. And, and the Bible says enmity, war war that exists between God and puny little creation God sees it and he's going to deal with it until such a time that God covers the scars with the righteous robes of Jesus and when he does that what does God see he sees his son nothing else nothing else is needed nothing else will satisfy God is appeased and holiness is given amen church Holiness, apart from holiness, no one will see God, and we have it. We have it in Christ, completed. So that was the bad news. God isn't just sitting in heaven dispensing out love. He's dealing with sin, and there isn't anything you can do. I mean, if sin was bad enough, the fact that you can't fix it. I'm a fix-it guy by nature. I really am. When people are hurting, I want them to stop hurting. I'm not good at it. I'm just, by nature, I'm a fix-it guy. When something's broken, I want to fix it. But you can't fix this problem. You can't can't learn enough. You can't pray enough. You can't try enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't be sincere enough. You can't fix it. Only God can satisfy his own wrath for our sin. We need help. We need something that doesn't need me to be good because I can't be good. Would you agree? We need something that will last forever because I can't last an hour. We need what God requires, we need holiness. And that's what this new covenant is all about. This new covenant is, is a one-sided relationship. I didn't read this part of the story, but let me describe to you how clear God is making our sin and his provision. In Genesis chapter 15, God says to Abraham, Abraham, look at the stars. Do you see the stars? Do you see them really? Can you count? You can't count them. But that's how big your your family's going to be. Abraham believed and it was credited. That belief wasn't conjured in his own heart. That belief was a gift of God. Abraham goes, God, how do I know? How do I know you're going to keep your word? And then begins this little contract. It's called cutting the contract. In that culture, when you made a a, a covenant, a promise, a deal with someone else, you would gather animals and you would cut them in two. And you would separate the pieces, and the blood and the gore would be between the pieces, and you and the party making the deal would join arms and walk between the pieces, saying, in essence, let it be done to me as it was done to this animal if I don't keep my end of the deal. So I can just picture Abraham in his mind. God says, okay, Abraham, you're confused if I'll keep the promise. Okay, go collect these animals. And I, and I can just imagine Abraham going, okay, good. Good, he's making a promise. We're going to have a contract. Right, we're going to sign the contract. And so he cuts the pieces, and he lays them out, and I can just see him anticipating that kind of moment when whatever would join him in passing through. And the text tells us that Abraham fell into a deep, deep sleep, a dark cloud over him. He passed out, a sovereign unconsciousness. God took him out for a point, for his good and for our good looking back. So when the contract between God keeping his promise, that faith credited as righteousness, when God is about to make the deal, where is man? He's out cold. The Bible tells us that a kind of a pillar of fire and smoke, God showing his presence in that form, passed between the pieces signifying, I'm making the deal to myself. I'm promising myself I'll keep it. It has nothing to do with you. Let's say God decided to do a different kind of deal. Let's say God said, you know what, I'm gonna do 90. This is a great deal. You take this deal anywhere you could get it. I'll do 90% of the issues of your sin. You just carry 10. How would that go? You'd jack it up, wouldn't you? You would before you got to the car. What if God said, I know that's a little bit heavy, 10% is too much. I'll do 99.9. You just carry that little point something. How would that do? You jack it up. The reason why God did it all is because you can do nothing. You can do nothing. It is the biggest affront to human pride. In arrogance, when you get the gospel that it's that bad and you can do nothing, you can't fix your problem, you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, that God has to satisfy himself, he has to do it all, and he simply gives this life. He gives salvation, he gives holiness by nothing more than faith. We say it all the time, right? Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. There isn't anything to add and leave it alone. Nothing, nothing else to do. It's a one-sided, 100% God and nothing of you. It's God, of God and for God. The other thing true of this new covenant is that it lasts forever. Unlike everything else in our life, unlike all of our own promises, unlike all of our own recommitments to Jesus and all the things we say we will never do or we promise to start doing, all that stuff, this covenant lasts forever and ever. When when God pronounces the promise, the covenant in Jeremiah 31, his statement is, He will remember the sin no more. When David responds to the same truth in Psalm 103, he said, As far as the east is from the west. Let me use an illustration. As far as directions are apart from from each other. So far, God has removed your sin from you. He won't bring it up again. Amen? You didn't say that like you believe it. Amen? It's too good to be true. It's too big. You don't even get that experience. You know, when you lay awake at night and you're haunted by your regrets, God doesn't have them. He's looking at the same life and he doesn't see it. He chooses to free only the perfect complete hassid love of God given freely to sinners who don't deserve could liberate like that that's it there isn't any other solution so if you've made the mistake of coming to church to thinking you could clean up your own act I'm sorry to tell you the bad news which is really the front door to the good news you can't but you can get what you need and it's free comes by faith in God's finished work, period. It's perfect. It's perfect, it's holiness, there is no other way. In fact, the scriptures tell us, if you're confused about effort and performance and law, the, the scriptures tell us that the, the law was powerless to change us, right? And The law was only given, Galatians says, to lead us to one location. It wasn't to self-righteousness, it wasn't to better happy life, it was to holiness only through Christ. The law was given to prove that we can't. It wasn't given as a path. Do you understand? In fact, let me just just bucket all this covenant stuff up. I believe the scripture from cover to cover is just one covenant. You can almost say the new covenant is the revealed covenant because it's always been by grace alone, in faith alone, to a redeemer that would come or a redeemer that has come. Do you see? Noah was granted favor. Abraham was granted faith. David was empowered by God, apart from themselves, over and over again, every individual. Hebrews chapter 11, which is the the hall of fame of faith, every person in there, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Who is the source of faith? Say it. Yeah, not you, not me. This whole thing is one covenant. Sinners saved by Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen and amen. So let me read you the most concise description of the good news in all of Scripture. But now a righteousness apart from God, I'm sorry, now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, that propitiation through faith in his blood. So what? Church, you're free from condemnation. Romans 5, Romans 8 says, now there, if that's true, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. You know that fear that always haunts sinners who sin is that, oh, it's going to catch up to me. The hammer's going to fall. God's going to change his mind. He's going to get tired of my act. Listen, listen. Let it absorb into your body, okay? No condemnation. No judgment. Why? Because he judged his son. You're free from condemnation. You're free from fear, you know? You're free that you don't have to wonder if somehow God, I know God made a lot of promises, and I know God kept a lot, but... I'm so bad. I, I, I'll bet I'm the exception to the rule. He won't quit because his character is Hesit, faithful, pursuing hound to heaven, never quit, loyal, God to sinner love. Never. It. You don't have a fear. You might be sitting here today going, Yeah, but you don't know my story. You don't know how bad I struggled. You don't. I love Jesus. I really do. And I, I know, I know, I believe because I was clueless before and I have affection now and I've seen victory over sin and I've repented over these things, but I struggle with this deal. Listen, your struggles don't overwhelm God, they don't surprise God. Now, you know as well as I know, this is not somehow go get your license and sin and have fun thing. This is that your flesh, which wars with the spirit within you, the, the failures of that, that relationship, God covers. You're free from fear. There is no fear in the gospel. And I think the last thing you need to know is that you're, fear, you're free to reflect the covenant maker. You know, we have a wonderful description of our God here, that he's that kind of pursuer of sinners that kind of faithful lover to perpetual failures, this God who satisfies his own standard for sin that we've committed and commit, this, this God now has empowered us through his spirit to reflect, right? You know, back in the, in the Old Testament, they would have these bronze mirrors they would make. They would hammer them out of, you know, bronze and, and, and pound them down and kind of polish them up. But if you took one of those bronze mirrors, I mean, it was really bad, right? You could see... Some kind of reflection in the right light. It was very, very dim, a shape and an outline, not like the mirrors we have today. When the gospel changes a person, we now have the clarity to reflect the image of God in a world that's broken and dead. So let me give you some illustrations of that as we close. I think because God is a promise maker and a promise keeper to people who don't deserve, and then he says, I won't leave you alone, I'll empower you with my spirit, Then we have the ability to keep our covenants, right? You know how many times we we counsel people who've decided, you know, I'm tapping out on this marriage thing. She is nothing like I thought. I, I don't like him very much at all. Listen. Who they are has nothing to do with the promise you make. Nothing. Because the promise was to who? Say it. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't to yourself. It wasn't because you were so concerned with your happiness and that you would, you know, have a Hollywood kind of romantic version of life. You made a promise to choose another over yourself. That's called love. It's not feelings. It's a choice. So we we counsel like tons of people who are saying I'm tapping out I don't want this relationship and so covenant means nothing to us and I get it apart from Christ we can't we can't we have no ability but with the power of God working in us mightily we can choose another Amen Amen Amen? we can choose someone over ourselves we can suffer for the gospel's sake can't we can't we we can be better parents. You know, I know none of us, probably very few of us, maybe there's some, who consciously organize their offspring. You know, like, here's what we're going to do, here's what we're going to do it, and here's, what, here's my plans. I didn't think it that far, you know. I, I just took the inevitable part of life. It's going to happen. But it is, it is a covenant because God said it's a, it's a resource you must steward, and he's going to ask you about it, Dad. He's going to ask you about it, Mom. Those are my kids. What would you do with them? Are you keeping your covenant to steward God's resources? Are you transferring your authority to God as soon as possible? Or are you just transferring your sin? This thing we're doing right now, you know, even though it's just a corporate gathering, it represents an hour and a half in our week, this thing called church is a covenant. Did you know that? It's not something we attend or a message that we hear. This is a relationship, a body of believers in community meant to sharpen each other, encourage each other, pray for each other, build each other up so that we can become like Jesus, right? We submit to authority in a covenant and we give. Those offering boxes aren't just for decoration. We give because we're in a covenant relationship. God isn't broke. He doesn't need the dough. you understand? And we could just bury it. We could just keep going down the list of covenants and promises and reflection. How do we reflect the the covenant received? How do covenant people reflect that God, this chesed love who never, ever quits? So let me just ask you to think through the person or the situation or circumstance that you're done with, that you don't want to follow through on. The power of God working in you will allow you to reflect the faithfulness and covenant God, right? Amen, church? Well, you heard, uh, I don't know what else to talk about to get us ready for communion. Uh, I know Paul is going to come in just a second and whet our appetites. But everything we talked about was this new covenant in the, in the blood of Christ, which we will hold and we'll take together. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your love. Your faithful, eternal, never say never, never quit, gracious, unmerited love. Thank you for um, the sin that you defeated and the holiness you've given. God, thank you for um, the power you leave us with to reflect your life, reflect your covenant. Help us to do that. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.